I have a question for you. Have you ever spent much time thinking about and answering the question of where your food comes from? Maybe you don't want to know. Maybe, maybe the answer to the question scares you a little bit. You don't want to know. Uh, you know, if you had asked one of the, the children on their way out a moment ago, they may have uh, almost certainly answered with a very simplistic answer. You know, the food comes from McDonald's. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, something that is food adjacent comes from McDonald's. That is correct. Uh, or they might have said, I was thinking, you know, the pantry or the kitchen or the grocery store, right? The food comes from the grocery store. Uh, the answer, of course, you and I as, as uh, you know, adults know, uh, is it's more complicated for, you know, especially for a highly industrialized nation such as our own. The, the, there's a very vast network of people and processes that come together to form uh, what we call a supply chain that, that gets food and other things and commodities from the field or the factory to, uh, to the store and to our, our home. Um, but we know after the last couple of years, don't we, that, that a supply chain is not impervious to disruption, don't we? You know, we're sort of living in the midst of a time where that's become more apparent than ever. In fact, over the last two years, we've seen all manner of disruptions to supply chains. Uh, you farmers have felt, have felt it. Um, you've had a hard time finding workers. You've found that there are fewer distribution options due to the shortage of demand from traditional buyers such as schools and restaurants and hotels. Do you remember back in June of 2020, there were reports that U.S. dairy farmers were dumping some 3.7 million gallons of fresh milk every day. And when we, we see reports like that, and then we, we go to our local gro- grocery store and there's no milk in the dairy, you're, you're wondering, why is, that, why is there a surplus here and a shortage here? And the answer is, well, the, the, the packaging and trucking partners had a hard time pivoting and transitioning from, you know, the way the supply chain was operating to the new reality of the supply chain's need. It wasn't something that happened overnight. It takes time for these things to work themselves out. You know, they, they weren't equipped to, to stop carrying milk to places like restaurants and schools and then suddenly start carrying it to uh, grocery stores that, that have a greater demand than they had before. And yet, at the same time, cows are still needing to be milked twice a day. And, and a farmer only has so much storage capacity for his milk, and so millions of dollars of perishable goods were just flushed down the drain. When was the last time you bought a steak? <laughs> right? That, that response is almost as painful as the daylight savings one a moment ago. You know, steak prices are up. And, and, and there are times where steak or other meats can even be difficult to find on the grocery store shelves. Why? Well, the, the plants that process the meat have a hard time keeping workers due to the, the pandemic or to other contributing social and political and economic factors. So from, from packaging plants to the transportation sector and everything in between, each step of the supply chain has been susceptible to delays and disruptions. The, the things that, that we are just used to aren't the case anymore. And that's because the, the market-to-consumer relationship has been in flux due to events in our nation and around the world. Who of you in here will ever forget that season in life when you couldn't find a ply of toilet paper anywhere? Man, those were some scary times, weren't they? <laughs> Has there ever been a more, a more first world problem than that? That people are panic buying toilet paper. Um, but, you know, we probably thought we'd never see such a time. And yet, 
now that we've experienced that and we're in this sort of new world that we're in, none of us would be surprised if we ever saw something like that again. But this morning, I want to look at a passage in John, and you may have looked in the bulletin and seen where we are already this morning, but I want to look at a passage in John that shows that modern, industrialized, first, you know, first nation people aren't the first to have supply chain concerns. Turn to John chapter 6, if you would. We're going to be focusing on what's taking place between verses 22 and 55, but really, the full story uh, in this chapter begins at the beginning of the chapter, all the way back in verse 1, and it kind of doesn't end until verse 70. But I'm going to spare you, you know, reading 70 verses. Uh, I, I've been taking a little liberty the last few weeks and reading you know, longer passages, but I'm not going to read all 70 verses. In fact, uh, the first chunk of this we've actually covered in recent weeks, so we're, we're not going to do that again. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going get, to get us all caught up on the context of, of our passage where I wanted to focus um, and, and then we're going to pick up in verse 34, and we're going to examine this back and forth exchange that Jesus has with this crowd of people that has been following him. Now, a month ago, um, we were in verses 1 through 14, and we, we looked at that story of how Jesus fed the multitudes, right? You remember that story, the crowds that followed Jesus into the wilderness, which as we noted then was a very important detail, it wasn't something just sort of trivial or, or, you know, extra to the passage. It was essential to understanding the fullness of what's happening here, that they followed Jesus into the wilderness. That was the location of where uh, the events took place. And there he miraculously fed the people with the, the five barley loaves and the two sardines. But what seemed random to the people, you will recall, was not random or accidental to Jesus. Now, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, and, and John tells us as much. He he, he, he saw the situation, he saw it coming, he knew it was going to happen, he knew what his plan was, and his plan was for the events that took place out in that wilderness to be a powerful reenactment of that time that God miraculously provided for his people in that period of time between Egypt and the promised land. In the wilderness, God fed his people. God sustained them, he nourished them, he provided for them. And Jesus was making a statement about himself his identity and his mission by this reenactment in the wilderness that was not by accident or chance. And what takes in our, pl- our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning happens the next day. So that the same crowd of people have come back looking for something, well, looking for more. And, and we know, of course, what happens in between, right? We were there uh, a, a few weeks ago that overnight the disciples found themselves on the sea and the sea is tossing them uh, all around with the storm. And, they, and here comes Jesus walking across the waves. Also, not random, not coincidental, not without meaning. There's something going on here. Jesus is revealing something about himself. He's revealing something about what he is here to do. And he's making himself known in this event on the water. But it's the next day. And it's not just Jesus and his disciples. It's the crowds. They've returned. They found him again, and it's immediately apparent as we look in the text that the, the connection between Jesus feeding the people in the wilderness and God feeding his people in the wilderness was not lost on them. In fact, they, they've already established some rudimentary connection between what Jesus was doing and what God has done and what it might mean, and they're thinking about those things. And after a brief back and forth with Jesus about manna in the time of Moses, with Jesus, of course, insisting that It was God who provided the bread then, and it's God now who's providing the true bread uh, from heaven. They get to, well, what I'm going to call 
the discussion pertaining to the supply chain here in verse 34. So let's pick up in verse 34. I'm going to read down to verse 58. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I have come down from heaven? But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I, who was sent from God, have seen him. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever and this bread, which I offer to the, so the world may live, is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what, that, what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. One of the things that I, well, I, I want to say learned in seminary, but really it's something I started to learn in seminary. It's something I'm continuing to learn and need to keep learning for the rest of my life, and perhaps you do too, is that sometimes we can be a little too smart for ourselves, can't we? It's possible to overthink things, and sometimes when we overthink things, we tend to miss the thing that is most important. And that can be the case here as we're reading through this passage and we're hearing the things that Jesus is saying. There's a lot of repetition in things Jesus is saying. I'm sure you felt that as I, as I did as I was reading that to you. But it can be the case here in John that we overthink what it's, what's being said. And we can do that not just in John. We can do that really anywhere in the scriptures if we're not careful. Good Bible students that you are, I'm sure that when we come to a, a passage like this, um, like mine, your theological radars start going haywire, don't they? You hear Jesus say something like, I am, and you, you know from past sermons and past Bible studies in Sunday school and wherever else you've, you've been discipled, you've learned that when, when you see in the Greek the, that phrase, ego a me, 
I am, you immediately start making theological connections. Why is that? Well, that's because ego eimi reflects the divine name that God revealed to Moses back in uh, Exodus chapter 3. You remember the story. God hears the, the, the cries of his people in bondage and in slavery, and he, he comes to them. He, comes to, he, he manifests himself to Moses, and, and he calls Moses to go and, and share his word of deliverance to his people and to represent him before Pharaoh. And Moses is, is well, that's fine and dandy, but what do I tell them your name is? Who, who are you that I can take this message and, and say this, this God or this one has told me these things? And God's re- response, of course, there in verse 14 is, I am who I am. Go therefore and tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, John, the gospel writer, loves double meanings, right? He, he, he writes very symbolically and metaphorically, and he likes, he likes things to have uh, meaning on multiple levels as he says things. And there's no doubt that he intended for his readers to, to make this connection between Jesus's, at least some of Jesus's I am statements and the divine name of God, because he's, he wants the reader to, be a, to, to know without doubt that Jesus himself is God in the flesh. He is the son that came from the father's own heart. He is the one revealing himself. He is the one disclosing himself and by extension making the father known in his flesh and blood. Now that's especially true that, that John wants us to make this connection between Jesus saying I am and the name of God there in Exodus chapter 3. It's especially true in places where the predicate nominative is absent. Okay, so where it just says I am. And also in places where the context sort of demands that we make this connection. For example, back a little bit further in in our chapter here, if we had taken the time to read it, back in uh, verses 19 and 20, when, when the disciples who are in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, and they see this one approaching them on the waves, and it says that they're terrified, and we know from the other gospels that they even think it's a ghost that has appeared on the on the waves as approaching them. What does Jesus say? Fear not, I am. He doesn't say, hey guys, it's me, it's me. No, he says, fear not, I am. Don't think for a second that John does not tell that story the way he does in such a way as for us to connect the dots that it's not just any person approaching them on the waves. No, this is the Holy One in the flesh overcoming the chaos of the sea to, to, to meet his disciples there. Or how about in chapter 18 as the, as the, the, the soldiers you know, invade the garden where Jesus is praying. And they've come to arrest him and, they, and Jesus sees them coming. Of course, he knows what's happening. He knows what's going on and he's on top of things and he, he has a plan for what's, what's about to transpire and he asked them, who are you looking for? Now, do you think Jesus wondered who they were looking for? No. He's setting them up so that he can reply. Who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says what? Ego eimi, I am. And what's their response? They're they're blasted backward by this response. Now, I don't want to overstate what happens here, but I don't want to miss what's happening here either. Don't think for a second that John wasn't in some way trying to help his reader see the magnitude of this self-disclosure, this revelation of Jesus in this moment. 
I am. Now, I don't think it's any more clear than uh, in chapter 8, when Jesus makes the astonishing claim uh, there, um, where he says in verse 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And in case you were doubting that that John intended for us to see that as a, a startling claim to divinity, just consider the response of everybody who heard him say it. They, they took up stones, didn't they? Because they knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew that he was claiming some type of equality, some type of connection, some type of identi- identification with the one who is. But you know, not every single one of the 21 times ego a me occurs in the Gospel of John is primarily concerned with establishing and affirming the, the divinity of Jesus. And that's where you and I can, can miss the mark if we're not careful. We can come to every time you see I am and think, ah, that's about Christ's divinity. Well, it's not necessarily the case. Sometimes the focus is meant for some other important aspect of his identity and mission. And this is especially the case when the I am statement is concluded with a predicate nominative. Now, you grammar students in there, I know Abby's in here, Abby could tell you exactly what the predicate nominative is. In case uh, you weren't sure, it's that noun or that pronoun that completes a linking verb and it renames the subject. So if I were to, to give you the opportunity, and I may regret this, to respond to me and answer this question, how would you say, how would you answer the question, or how would you finish the sentence, Pastor Sean is blank. tall. Did you say old? Whoa. Okay. I have already regretted this exercise. Um, but you get the point. The, how your answers or your filling in the blank, that's the predicate nominative of the sentence, right? You're completing the, the, the thought, the expression in such a way that it renames the subject, myself. And that's what we have here stated at least three times in the passage that I just read to you, where Jesus is making a statement about himself. I am, ego me, me, absolutely, but I am something. I am the bread of life. And my, my fear is, and maybe you don't, you don't see the fear here, and maybe I'm overstating it, but I... I I think there's, there's value in this. I, I fear that if we overthink the present, the first half of the, of the expression, that we, we, we run the risk of missing the expression's fullness. We, we run the risk of missing the primary point of it. Yes, of course, that Jesus is divine is the undercurrent of everything that's going on in the Gospel of John. Of course. But we, we absolutely, we hear, when we hear the words of Jesus, we know we're hearing the words of the Lord. We're hearing the words of God incarnate. The word made flesh, absolutely. But that's not always the primary point in what he's saying. So I want to know, when Jesus says something, I am something, I want to know what he means by that. I want to know what he's saying about himself. What does it mean here for the people that he's talking to then, and for you and me this morning, that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, simply put, to bring us back full circle to the original question that I asked you about this morning, Jesus is the solution to all our supply chain concerns. But obviously, I don't mean the supply of your physical 
nourishment. That's what the crowds were concerned with, isn't it? That's why they came back, wasn't it? They were thinking, wow, that was pretty amazing what he did yesterday. (laughs) Maybe not everyone saw how it happened. I mean, it was a large crowd. But surely every one of them at some level had a sense that something was happening here that was out of the ordinary. And in the very least, they, they know that when they gather at a Jesus, you know, worship service, they come away with full tummies. So, hey, let's go back. Let's go back for more. You know, they, they, I, I mean, can you blame them? I mean, you know, they didn't have the, the Paneras on every cor- corner. They didn't have, you know, the Visa card in their wallets. Can I just say, I, I used to hate going to Panera whenever Marcy White would, you know, require the staff to go for staff lunch. I hated it. And you want to know why? Because I'd always come away hungry. I'd spend like $10 and I'd still be hungry afterwards. But then I made a discovery. You know where this is going. You guys know where this is going. The bread bowl. And, and I found a way to game the system at Panera by getting the half sandwich and the half soup in a bread bowl with a baguette. We call it the bread bomb. And I go from walking away feeling hungry to never feeling hungry again. The people wanted their bread bomb. (laughs) They had hopes of never going hungry again. But Jesus, of course, as Jesus always does, directs their attention to the greater need. And even more, in verse 30, it's pointed out that in order for them to believe in Jesus, he would have to perform a sign like Moses. That was the, the cry of the people. Yeah, you say you want us to believe in you, but if you want us to really believe in you, you got to do kind of the same kinds of things that Moses was doing, right? That's, so Moses gave them food, but he also gave them signs. They, they, they were demonstrations. And, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because up until this point, John's gospel is loaded with signs. He's already been giving them the signs. In fact, the, the feeding itself was a sign. And yet, they still miss it, don't they? Verses 26 and 7, Jesus calls them out. He says, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Isn't it amazing how Jesus takes our very, you know, fleshly concerns and desires and requests and he he redirects them? to the real need, the real issue at heart, the real thing that matters in our lives. How many times have you gone into prayer thinking, I need to pray about this thing, and I want an answer to this thing or a solution to this problem, and you came out with a totally different experience than what you went into it with? I'll tell you, it happens almost every time I pray. Or I go to, my intent is to pray for something that's on my mind and my heart, but if prayer is really what I think it is, prayer is not about me coming up with my agenda and getting God to somehow conform to it. Prayer is me coming to God with an open posture and say, God, conform me to your agenda. 
And God's agenda is almost always different, but better, always better than our own. And that's what Jesus does. He knows the real needs of the human person, doesn't he? He knows that our needs are greater than even the needs for food. And for those of you who missed breakfast this morning, you might find that a little hard to believe right now. How can there be a greater need than this immediate urgency to satisfy this most basic, fundamental need of the human body? This guttural requirement. If I go three hours without something, my stomach is screaming at me. We've got two cats in my house right now. They think that life is going to end if there's not perpetual food in their bowls. It's ridiculous. And Jesus comes along and says, your needs are even greater than that. There's something you need even more than your daily bread. You know, the last time God miraculously provided daily bread for his people, were they happy and satisfied and content and full of faith and worshiping God and honoring him with their attitudes and their hearts and their service to him? No. Oh, no. No, God provides manna and the people still grumble. Because filling a belly isn't the ultimate need of the human person. There's something deeper needed. There are matters that are greater than your physical hunger. And I think there's some of you here this morning who have been struggling with a bad attitude or maybe even doubts because of your perception of a lack of something in your life. You think you are in need of something, and if God would only provide that thing, then you could have a good attitude. Then you wouldn't have a reason to grumble. You wouldn't have a reason to murmur. If God would just, maybe it's not something that you're lacking. Maybe it's something that's in your life that you want removed. And you say, God, if you would remove this thing, then I will be able to praise you. Then I will be able to be about your business in the world, and everything will be right, and I will sing your praises and be your witness to the ends of the earth. We think that that's the problem. We think the problem is some thing we're lacking. We think the problem is some thing that's in our lives that needs to be removed. And Jesus says, no, there's something deeper that is your problem. Just like here. The problem is not food. The problem is the heart. There's something wrong in the heart. And as Jesus reveals that he is that true bread that comes from heaven... Bread that satisfies forever. They came asking for another miracle, another, hey, I want some more of that barley bread, Jesus. I love some more sardines. Jesus says, no, I'm here to give you me. I'm the bread that lasts forever. And how do the people reply? They murmur. They murmur. Verse 41, it's the exact same thing as grumbling. They're no different. However many centuries or whatever have passed from the, the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, people haven't changed. And guess what? Have they changed today? We don't get what we want, we complain. We don't have all that we think we need, we grumble. We pout. We have these bad attitudes. And I would suggest to you that if that is you, then your greatest problem is not the thing you think you need or the thing you, you think you need removed. It is your heart. Your heart is the problem. And I promise you, if you only ever come to Jesus for things, 
you will be disappointed. I promise you. If all you ever come to Jesus for is the things, you will be disappointed. In his uh, daily text devotional from November, I'm sorry, September 6th in 2020, J.D. Walt said this. These are, this is an excerpt from that, uh, that devotional. He said this, We want the bread to be the bread <laughs> and not some kind of metaphor for God. When I am in debt, what do I want? I want money. If I'm facing a hard circumstance, I want a solution. If I'm in a hard battle, I want victory. If I'm hungry, I want bread. I want God to provide all these things. All the while, God simply wills to provide himself. Jesus is the answer. And the answer might not involve a windfall of money or a solution to the problem or a victory in the battle. We look for solutions when we need a savior. Jesus is not God's solutions to, solution to all of our problems. Jesus is God's gift of himself to us. It sounds simple, but it is the hardest thing we'll ever do. To entrust ourselves completely, unreservedly, and continuously to Jesus. True maturity does not come from pleading for answers to our prayers, but from desperately seeking the one who answers. Jesus knows what you truly need, and he offers it in limitless supply. It's not food. It's not comfort. It's not even good health. It is himself. It is himself. The point of the sign, the point of the reenactment, this this rehearsal of, of Israel's history in the wilderness for these people, the point of the discussion that ensues is not that Jesus provides food. It is that Jesus is food. That's the point. He is the one who mediates the very life of God for you. Life that truly satisfies. Life that unlike those millions of gallons of milk that were flushed down the toilet, life that is imperishable. If you and I aren't careful, we can commit a greater error this morning than simply overthinking a text and somehow missing its primary point. If you and I aren't careful, we can in our pursuit of the things Jesus can give and never the pursuit of him himself, we can end up missing everything he's offering you today. That's the danger if we're not careful. For people who hunger, not for the, the Panera bread bomb, but for those all-important spiritual things, righteousness, holiness, salvation, eternal life, Jesus is the only bread you need. His flesh, his blood on the cross, those are your food and drink. Not literal flesh and blood. That was the debate, wasn't it? That was the debate that ensued there in in verse 52. That is also the debate that the church has wrestled with for centuries. 
Well, what does this mean that your, your body is, is our food? What does it mean that your blood is our drink? Well, it's, Jesus wasn't telling you to become a cannibal, to, to have his life. No, he's saying, you, you don't need to eat me literally. You need to receive the offering of myself because without my death, you cannot live. All he wants for many of us at the end of the discussion, was actually found all the way at the beginning of the discussion. I love that about this, the, the way that John structures this whole narrative. The answer to it all is at the beginning. And it's right there in verse 29 when they ask, what do we need to do? We want to do, do the works of God. We want to be, a, you know, to do these things that you're talking about. And Jesus says, the only thing the Father wants you to do is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. That's it. To believe in me. Faith is how we consume Jesus and are filled. And in him, we find a complete and sufficient and limitless and indisruptible supply chain of life reduced to a single man who gives life that never runs out, life that never expires, life that lasts forever. Whoever comes to me, he says, whoever comes to me, will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Will you come to Jesus? Will you believe in him? Will you seek him? Not just the things that you think you need from him. Would you seek him this morning? That is my hope and my prayer for you and for me as we finish this worship service receiving his body, and his blood. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the, the, the simple messages of your, of, of your word. And it's so easy to get caught up in all the, the technical Greek things and the, the deep theological ideas. And not that those are bad. They're, they're good and they're helpful. And we need to wrestle with all the, 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 the fullness of your truth. But sometimes at the end of the day, we, we can overthink things and miss the point. And Jesus, the point cannot be more clear or simple. It's something as basic as understanding what it means to eat to survive. Lord, we cannot live forever apart from you. So I pray that in these moments that remain, if there's any person in here who has never partaken of you, may they come to you and believe in you today. May they see that nothing else in life can satisfy. Nothing else in life can provide. Nothing else in life can give them life like you can. You are the bread of life, true bread from heaven. Lord, in these moments to come, may we feast upon you in faith and live forever. Amen.